Well, last week we started to look at Jesus' parable of the four soils, and we didn't get into the details. We didn't get into the weeds, no pun intended, um, but we're going to get into the weeds today. Last week we covered three points. We talked about interpretation of parables, the intention of parables, and the importance of this particular parable. And if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back and look at last week's sermon. But today we want to get into the actual four soils. So Jesus begins with the path. In verse 14, he says, the sower sows the word. So right here, we see that in the parable, the seed represents the word of God or the gospel, and the farmer sowing the seed would be the preacher or the teacher of the word of God. And notice the variable that makes the difference from soil to soil is not the seed. The seed is meant to remain the same from soil to soil. We aren't to alter the gospel uh, to tickle ears. We're to be faithful in proclaiming the biblical gospel no matter where we go. Now, of course, you can contextualize. What that means is you, you learn the language, you learn the culture, you learn the values of the, of the people you're, you're trying to reach, and you use words and stories and illustrations that will help them understand the gospel, but the gospel is to remain the same from culture to culture to culture. So the path, uh, what, who, who are these people on the path? Well, he says, and these are the ones along the path, verse 15, where the word is sown. When they hear Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So the path in a field is where the farmer and other people would walk and it would be beat down and hard and nothing would grow there because it's so hard. Sometimes it's like cement. Uh, you throw seed on it, and the seed can't even penetrate beyond the surface, so the birds come and eat the seed. Now, Jesus says the birds are Satan. Satan is the master of distraction. Satan's job is to get our mind off of eternal truth. And I think his job got a whole lot easier with the invention of the cell phone, which is a full-time distraction device. In fact, I read some statistics the other day. Teens try to juggle up to six to seven forms of media all at the same time. Um, I even see Moody students. They've got their phone, they're texting, they're talking, they have TV on, they have laptops on, um, they ha it's, it's just all going on at once, and they think they're able to concentrate, and there's no way that you can fully concentrate with that much going on. Now, not to, uh, not to be too hard on the teens, one statistic says adults check their smartphones 
up to 150 times a day. And in fact, three-fourths of smartphone users feel panicked when they can't locate their smartphone. If they aren't interrupted every minute or so, they start to panic. So um, the cell phone has made Satan's job of distracting a whole lot easier. But the problem with the people who are the path is not their cell phone. It's a deeper problem, and that is their hard heart. The distractions just make it that much easier for them to be uh, defocused on the things of God. So a question to ask is this. Do you recognize yourself as having symptoms of being on the path? A hard heart toward the things of God, a lack of interest in the things of God, a super easily distracted heart that doesn't pay attention to the things of God. Now, if you say, oh my, that's me, let me offer some hope. Do you have at least a small degree of desire to not be distracted from the things of God, to want to be able to understand the gospel? If there's even a smoldering flame of interest, it's not too late. Jesus, in Matthew 12, 20, it's actually, it's actually Matthew quoting the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. And it's Matthew applying this verse to Jesus. It says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. And the idea here is that if you go down to a river and there are reeds growing, um, if, if you see one that's bruised and bent, most people would say that's useless, throw it away. You know, they would use those reeds to make baskets and for, for other various reasons. Most people would dispense with the broken or, or bruised reed. And this says, no, no, Jesus will not dismiss you. A smoldering wick, that's a picture a candle that's ready to, to go out and it's just barely hanging on. And most people would say, well, we're done with that candle. Jesus is going to fan some air into the flame and he's not going to dismiss them. So I hope talking about the path is a wake-up call to say, wow, that's me. But I do have a spark of hope. Cry out and say, Jesus, don't abandon me. Fan some life into me. I want to be able uh, to understand the things of God. So let's move on now to the rocky soil. Verse 16 says this, and these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves. So the idea here is, is it's not soil with a bunch of rocks mixed in. 
it's a bedrock of limestone with a thin layer of soil on top. You throw seeds and the, the seed can penetrate down into the soil. A plant can start to grow, but it's not going to have any depth of root because it's going to hit the limestone. So when the sun comes out, it's going to scorch that plant and it's going to die. And Jesus says they endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. These are not people who are truly saved. In fact, the only truly saved growth are those who produce fruit. That's true throughout the rest of the New Testament. The only indication of, of true salvation is fruit. We'll talk about what fruit is in just a, a minute. These are people that have had some kind of emotional experience. It says they receive the word with joy, so they have an emotional experience uh, involving Jesus, involving the gospel, but it's temporary, and the thing that tests it are trials, tribulations, persecution. True saving faith perseveres through persecution and difficulty. It doesn't die out. You know, sometimes the difficulty can come from non-Christians outside of the church, maybe non-Christians in your family or at work. Other times, difficulty and testing can come from those inside the church, from not-so-Christ-like people. You know, one reason people quit following Christ is they get hurt in church. And I certainly don't want to make light of that, but I want to take a look at the Apostle Paul's life, he was persecuted not only from those outside the church, but he got stabbed in the back many times by people in the church. In Philippians chapter 1, he's in jail, and he's writing to the Philippians. In verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he goes, yeah, I'm in jail, but I've started a, a, a prison ministry and all the guards are talking about Jesus. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprison, imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So there's a little revival going on in the prison, and those outside of the prison are looking at my persecution, and it's making them bolder in sharing the gospel. Now, he says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. What does that mean? They're not really preaching Christ because they love the gospel and others. They're just stirring up trouble. They want a bigger following than Paul. Uh, they envy him, and they see him as a rival. But others preach from goodwill. The latter, do, uh, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. 
The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Can you believe that? There are those who were preaching the gospel purposely to hurt Paul more and more as he is in prison. But what does he do? Does he say, I don't need this, I quit? He says in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So if anybody had a right to quit because of trials and hardships, both from outside the church and inside the church, it would have been Paul. But his faith in Christ was actually strengthened by hardship. It wasn't diminished. Let's move on to the third soil, which is the thorny soil. Verse 18, And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So the rocky soil didn't last because of persecutions and problems. The thorny soil didn't last because of the opposite. The pleasures of this world choked it out. John Piper writes this. He's talking about the, uh, the thorny soil, and he writes, The third soil is America, where to be a Christian is sometimes just easy. It's clubby. You go to church, the music is nice, the air conditioning is nice, the lighting is nice, friends are there, the children have something fun to do, the sermon is more or less interesting, and we can go home saying that we've been Christians. Christians in other countries, however, are underground and must keep their voices quiet. And if they're found out, they go to jail. These are two very different situations. But in America, nobody's going to kill you for being a Christian. Rather, the dangers here are more subtle and probably more dangerous. In fact, it just might be more difficult to be a strong, vibrant, Christ-exalting, mission-driven Christian in America. Wow. America, the American church, at least according to Mr. Piper, is this thorny soil. What's going on here? Well, somewhere along the line in America, Jesus started to be presented as a comfortable addition that you can add to your life, if you want, rather than being preached as the radical, life-changing Savior and Lord who gave his all for us, and demands that we give our all for him. Again, he demands that we give our all not to be saved. He saved us by paying his all. But once we understand that, of course, the response is to give our all to him. There's a book I've mentioned a number of times. It's called The Great De-Churching. And it talks about the fact that over the last several years, 40 million people who used to attend church in America 
at least once a month, now go less than once a year. And they give some of the reasons why they don't go to church. Here are some of them. My friends were not attending. Attendance was inconvenient. Suffering changed my view of God. I wanted to express my gender identity. I moved to another community. It's too restrictive of my sexual freedom. Scandal involving the clergy. I chose to worship completely online. Now, behind all these reasons, except the, the, the uh, uh, clergy scandal, okay, except for that one, all the others have an assumption, which is this. I have a right to an easy, comfortable Christian life. And if it's not easy and not comfortable, I'm done. So here's a question. Does your love for Christ push you to do hard things, uncomfortable things, or once it becomes uncomfortable, are you no longer interested? Let me move to, finally, the good soil. But those that were sown, verse 20, on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Fruit is the sign of life, right? 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Now, that's, that's uh, referring to um, you plant one seed. How much fruit would result from one seed? Now, seven-fold was about average during this time and culture. Tenfold was an outstanding crop. But notice the least amount of yield in the truly saved soil, the good soil, is 30-fold. In other words, it's miraculously noticeable. Now, now it's true, only God knows who's truly saved. But this parable certainly seems to be saying that the difference between the unsaved and the saved should be radically noticeable. It shouldn't be, wow, I wonder who's truly a Christian. It should be radically noticeable. Now, what is fruit in a Christian's life? Let me give you three things. First of all, character. Christ-like character, and probably the best list of that character is the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You can fake spiritual gifts, but you cannot fake spiritual fruit. It has to be a miraculous transformation that takes place in our heart and through our motives. So um, one thing fruit is, is your character, spiritual, spiritual, uh, the fruit of the spirit being produced in your heart. Another thing, converts. You will want to share the gospel with others. Now, of course, some people are better at this than others, but the question is, do you at least have a desire to share Christ with others? There's a desire to see converts. So character, converts, and then finally, just the, the word commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, 
you will obey me. Again, you're not saved by obedience. You're saved by Christ. But faith in Christ involves loving him. And if you love him, you will obey his commandments. So, bottom line, this is a a, a self-evaluation sermon. Which soil are you? The totally disinterested path? The distracted, thorny and rocky soil? Or the good, fruitful soil? And if there's a flicker of desire to to run to Jesus, to be forgiven, to start again, cry out to him. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't leave us in the dark. Your parables, uh, this parable in particular, calls us to evaluate ourselves. Which soil are we? Yet we take heart, Lord, that you do not want to uh, disregard a bruised reed or a, a flickering candle, uh, but you will nurture it. So, Lord, anybody who's listening, um, if they have the slightest desire to grow, fan that flame, Lord, and I pray that multitudes would place their faith in you. And it's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.